Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Welcome to the National Gallery of Art. My name is David Gariff. I'm a senior lecturer here at the gallery. Today I'm presenting the second lecture in our summer series of talks normally held each year at the gallery. This summer's theme is staycation, and my talk today is about modern art on the French Riviera. I'm starting by showing you uh, some travel posters that deal with the French Riviera, and they deal specifically with the famous uh, blue train that would take people normally from Calais to the north, which you see in the center slide, and travel all the way down through Paris and eventually arrive at Nice. This was the famous uh, luxury French night express train. It was referred to sometimes as the Calais to, Medi to the Mediterranean Express. This train ran from 1886 uh, until 2003 when it was discontinued. And it is the route essentially that most people traveled from Calais to the French Riviera. The blue train, actually the term blue in this case, referred to the fact that the sleeping cars on this train were, were the color blue. But of course, blue refers to the Riviera and to the Côte d'Azur, the azure or blue coast, which is where people were eventually um, uh, headed. Now, to, to explain a little bit from the point of view of geography, where the French Riviera is, what it entails, and what it basically doesn't entail, here are a couple of uh, maps that show the Côte d'Azur, the French Riviera. It's a, the Mediterranean coastline of the southeast corner of France, and it in fact includes the uh, sovereign state of Monaco, which you can see on that map at the upper left-hand corner. Uh, it usually encompasses the area from the Italian border, uh, which is known as the Italian Riviera, all the way east to Saint-Tropez uh, and Cassis and Toulon. Uh, sometimes the term is used to refer to the coast east of Marseille, uh, so you can think of it that way. What it doesn't really encompass, though, is a, an area that you're probably familiar with, which is the area of Aix-en-Provence, the area where, for example, Cezanne resided and painted. The French Riviera tends to stay to the east of that particular uh, location, and so I will not be talking about <clears throat> painting as it pertains to uh, Aix-en-Provence, but we're going to stay properly on the French Riviera, essentially Nice, Antibes, Cannes, Saint-Tropez, uh, that particular part of the coast. Now, on the uh, coast and the major city of the French Riviera, this is the city that one would fly into in terms of the airport, is the city of Nice. And these are two historic photographs on the left from 1880 and on the right from 1927 that pertain to particular promenades or quays the one on the left is uh, referred to as the Promenade du, du, Midi, du Midi, and the one on the right is the Quay of the United States. Um, and these are extensions of the main promenade, the main coastal walkway that uh, is most famous in Nice and that I'll sort of spend more time on here in a second. This 
is uh, again a historic photograph of what was the most famous hotel along the uh, Cote d'Azur, along the famous promenade, and that's the Hotel Mediterranean that you see there. It's long gone, this hotel no longer exists, uh, but it represented the height of old world elegance at the turn of the century. Uh, Matisse, Henri Matisse, uh, lived, he occupied sev several rooms in this hotel between 1919 and 1921. He particularly liked it because it had incredibly high ceilings, tiled floors, very ornate windows, and above all, it had a, a luxurious view of the, uh, of the sea. This is a painting by an Italian painter that uh, I think most of you have not heard of. Uh, his name is Angelo Garino, Angelo Garino. And he is depicting here the walkway or the promenade of the English. This is the most famous promenade, the longest and the most unbroken, the Promenade des Anglais. And this is a painting from 1922. This is the promenade most people are familiar with, most people walk today. It actually extends from the airport on the west uh, to the quay that I just showed you, the promenade of the United States, which is on the east. That extent runs for about four and a half miles. We're gonna be continuing to come to this promenade because it was a favorite subject of most of the painters who resided somewhere in and around Nice and the French Riviera. Now there are a number of artists one could refer to uh, in terms of who worked and lived on the French Riviera. Um, I'm going to be talking about, I think, most of the major artists, uh, not, not all of the artists, but starting with, of course, uh, Claude Monet. Looking at a self-portrait on the left of Monet uh, with a beret from 1886, and on the right is a painting by Monet, painted in the, on the Riviera, The Red Road near Menton, from 1884. Monet visited several locations on the Riviera, Menton, which is the subject of this painting, um, Bordighera, Monte Carlo, Nice, Cannes, uh, Beaulieu, uh, Villafranca. He, was, he moved up and down the Riviera uh, at will and painted a number of seascapes uh, at the Cap Martin, this promontory, this large mountain outcrop that you see on the right. And that's what this is. This is near uh, the city of Antibes, which is another famous location. Now, what attracted almost every artist who came to the French Riviera was the light. And as soon as these artists experienced the light, which was this bright, blue, clear, clean, brilliant light, they referred to it, remarked upon it, they encourage their colleagues to come south to experience it. So that's going to be one of the hallmarks of French Riviera painting in the hands of uh, these modern masters. This is Monet's painting on the left. Again, the same, basically the same location, slightly different view. Uh, the Cap Martin, this outcrop again, near Menton from 1884 on the left. And then on the right is his painting, Monte Carlo, seen from Roque Brunet, another location, but it really shows you again that particular outcrop. Uh, this picture on the left uh, belongs to a group of paintings that Monet executed in April of 1884. 
we're standing on the eastern side of that cape and looking towards the bay and then the, the maritime Alps, which are those large mountains in the background. Um, he was drawn back to the Mediterranean coast, uh, which he had actually visited earlier with Renoir. Earlier in December of the previous year, he had visited this area with uh, Renoir. And the thing that impressed the two of the two, the two artists was the intensity of the light, the way he could explain, ex explore this idea of the airy expanse of light in this region. And that's clearly what he's trying to accomplish here. Much of the upper part of the painting on the left is actually left in reserve. It's not even filled in necessarily with um, pigment, but it's the clouds and these few sketchy strokes that define the, um, the whole feeling of the picture in the mountain and sky. In addition to uh, Monet, of course, was Renoir. And as I just mentioned, they had traveled here together uh, briefly, uh, but Renoir, like Monet, was particularly drawn to this uh, region once he experienced it. Uh, he again had traveled up and down the Riviera looking for various locations and uh, effects before finally settling in a location called Cagne Sumer, Cagne on the Sea, in 1907. He purchased a house, which you see there on the left, the farmhouse, uh, and he uh, expanded the house to include a studio. And he continued from 1907 to his death in 1919 to paint in this house, in the studio that you see, which is today uh, a, uh, a museum. So we can, we can visit this and see his studio. And in fact, that photograph on the right showing the aged Renoir with already his arthritic hands is actually taken in the studio in this house. These are two Renoir paintings from Cagne uh, Sumer. Uh, on the left, it's called Terrace at Cagne from 1905. And on the right, the farm at Les Colettes, that's what he called his farmhouse, Les Colettes, at Cagne Sumer from 1908. So 1905 on the left, 1908 on the, on the right. As I said, he purchased this house in 1907. Um, he pretty much was moved in uh, completely by the autumn of 1908. It was not only this picturesque farmhouse, but it, it, cons it consisted of groves of olive and orange trees. It afforded beautiful views of the countryside in one direction and of the sea uh, in another direction. And Renoir's paintings at Cagne Sumer take on this really fluid, diaphanous, suffused effect of bright light, this distinct light that attracted all these artists to the south of France. Uh, very often he used trees, and this probably came to him in part from Cezanne. Trees pulled up to the front of the picture plane almost as a screen, a visual screen that one has to move past to get to the actual uh, scene itself. Here is what his studio looks like today. And as I said, one can visit the museum and then one can um, come to the studio space. Uh, you're not allowed to actually walk in the studio, but you can look down from a kind of staircase that's up above. And we see a number of things here. First of all, the wheelchair. And I showed that to you in his photograph. By this time, his arthritis and other ailments were pretty much forcing him 
to be in a wheelchair. There's his easel on the left. And then an interesting uh, chair, it's more of a chaise lounge, is on the right. And in fact, often he would be carried into his studio like a sort of king by his models. So his models would actually carry him down to his studio space on that chaise lounge. Another artist fascinated with uh, the light and the sort of sea uh, on the Riviera was uh, Bert Morisot. So here's a photograph, an undated photograph of Bert Morisot on the left and her painting the Port of Nice on the right uh, from 1881 to 82. Of course, Morisot uh, was married to the brother of uh, Manet. She was married to Eugène Manet. And they together spent their winters, initially their winters, the cold months of 1881 to 82 uh, in Nice. They stayed in a hotel. It was a very fashionable hotel, Hotel Richmond. And uh, she was particularly interested in the harbor and the boats that came into the harbor. Um, even in the winter, it was warm enough for her to paint out of doors. So these paintings uh, were painted outdoors in natural light. And she was interested in two things. One thing was certainly the light, but the other thing was the, the water. And you can sense that here, this painting almost entirely from bottom to the middle is given up to these beautiful short choppy strokes of, of the waves breaking and the, uh, and the white caps of the water. This is a small painting on the right. It was one of her best on this particular campaign uh, in 1881 to 82. And in fact, in the second last Impressionist exhibition, which took place in 1882, there would be one more after that. But in the second last exhibition, she, she exhibited this particular painting. And in fact, from what we know from uh, her writings, the paint was barely dry when she had finished this painting before she was able to uh, actually install it in that exhibition. Two other uh, Bert Morisot paintings, uh, the one on the left is quite similar. This is again, the Port of Nice on the left from 1882. And then the Villa with Orange Trees uh, on the right, Villa with Orange Trees, then subtitled Nice from 1882. So the artist tended to look in two different directions, either towards the sea very often, or towards the countryside in the hill that was dotted with all of these lovely villas, as well as all of these beautiful uh, orange groves, olive groves, uh, which could command their attention for two different reasons, either the sea on one side, or the uh, landscape and countryside looking in the opposite direction from the sea. An artist uh, who is very closely associated with uh, the Riviera and has an entire museum like Renoir, has an entire museum devoted to him on the Riviera is Pierre Bonnard. Uh, these are two photographs of Bonnard. And of course, Bonnard was part of a important movement called the NABI, as they refer to N-A-B-I, the NABI, group of young artists who were committed to creating works that had a sort of symbolism and spiritual nature, sometimes highly abstracted. It included artists like Edward Vuillard, Maurice Dany. At the National Gallery, these artists are well represented in our collection, Bonnard, Vuillard, 
and Denis. Uh, Bonnard had left Paris in 1910 for the south of France. Um, he purchased a house, uh, kind of a pink stucco house, uh, overlooking the village of Les Canet. Uh, and that's where he would spend essentially the rest of his life in this house uh, near the town of Les Canet. Uh, he converted an upstairs bedroom uh, in this house to his studio. And he, like Renoir, like Monet, like Morisot, became totally entranced with the color, the light, and often even the visionary aspects of the Riviera, how the light would create almost a kind of abstract jumble of colors and shapes, and really what he often referred to as sensations, uh, as opposed to clearly defining objects that were in front of his eye. So he would spend the rest of his life from the time he left Paris in 1910 to the time that he died in 1947 uh, uh, along the French Riviera near Canet. Here are two Bonnard paintings uh, from this period. View of the old port, that's on the left from 1911. View of the old port, Saint-Tropez. So view of the old port, Saint-Tropez. And then on the right, Landscape in the South, then it's subtitled Le Canet. So both of these are from the Riviera, two favorite locations, Saint-Tropez on the left, looking through this window, and then Le Canet on the right, and that's a painting from 1943. Bonnard certainly had found inspiration in the paintings of Matisse and the Fauves, this brilliant use of vibrant color uh, abstraction, brush strokes that had a different kind of sense and touch of application, short choppy strokes, longer lozenge-shaped lozenge strokes. You sort of see that beautifully on the right because the right is this has this lush kind of green footpath in the foreground that defines this receding area. You see the orange roof of a house to the center left and then you see what appear to be the small squares of other buildings, the facades of other little buildings in the middle ground. And then we come to the sky, which is just these long, beautiful horizontal registers of color, these bands of color and very different sense of touch in terms of the brushwork in each of those bands that take us back to the sort of distant uh, horizon. He is especially interested as an artist in pattern. And so you sense that kind of textured pattern, and especially in the painting on the right. These are two paintings that we have at the National Gallery uh, by Bonnard. On the left is the barge, Saint-Tropez in the harbor of Cannes. That's the full title from 1926. And the painting on the right, the spring landscape, from 1935. So these are both in our collection at the National Gallery. And they show a, a, a beautiful sort of di difference here. The painting on the left, the, the paint is almost uh, flat, large flat areas, as opposed to loose sort of vibrant brush strokes. And in many ways, these two paintings speak to two other influences on Bonnard, um, as well as on Matisse for that matter. And that is Gauguin and Van Gogh. The painting at the left with these broader flat areas of color, although there's some beautiful texture in the sky, 
seems to relate more to Gauguin and then this beautiful, loose, vibrant, choppy, really sort of gorgeous um, foliage and vegetation in the painting at the right almost makes us think more of a painting by Van Gogh. Another artist associated with the Riviera uh, is certainly Paul Signac. And these are two paintings by Paul Signac. Uh, the Gulf, Gulf Juan, or John, Gulf Juan, on the left from 1896, and the Port of Saint-Tropez on the right from 1901. Signac first visited Saint-Tropez in 1892, and then he bought a villa in Saint-Tropez in 1897. Now, of course, Signac is tied directly to Georges Seurat, the, the post-impressionist associated with divisionism, this pointless technique. And certainly you can see the relationship here. Signac was the most devoted acolyte, you might say, of Seurat. He tried to stay true to Seurat's method but that was a pretty rigorous disciplined method. And eventually Signac begins to stray into, rather than into very specific points of color, points of paint, into larger shapes of paint, different structures that create a much more lively surface, certainly. And one that really does also begin to speak to a greater um, abstraction in the way that he treats foreground, middle ground, background. These beautiful rhythms, the painting on the right, the lower part where he's got us on the landscape, on the land, and the way the prows of those ships and boats move in and out, that's a beautiful, beautiful just linear rhythm along the bottom of that painting. This shows you perhaps both his debt to Seurat and also how he's beginning to, to move away from the rigor of Seurat's technique. This painting on the left is titled Antibes from 1911, and on the right, uh, Antibes Evening from 1914. Uh, certainly you see those little dots, but they're not really dots as much as they are beginning to be lozenges and broader strokes uh, for all of his desire to be the uh, true disciple of Seurat. That was so rigorous a technique. Seurat only painted seven major paintings in his entire career. And so what you see with Signac is sort of a loosening up of the rigor of the divisionist technique that had been put forward by, uh, by Seurat. Now, I mentioned that Bonard, or I'm sorry, Signac bought a villa here, bought a house here. And that's important because when Matisse came to visit, uh, they painted together, Signac and Matisse. And Matisse created a particularly important uh, painting at that time. And it's this painting that you're looking at, the finished painting on the right and the study on the left. So this is the painting on the right is looks, it always goes by its French title, looks calm et volupte, which you could translate in different ways, luxury, calmness, and pleasure, luxury, calmness, and voluptuousness. It has various different translations. The finished painting is on the right from 1904, and that's at the Musée d'Orsay today. 
But the preliminary sketch for the painting is on the left, which is in MoMA in New York today. So on the left is the study for the painting on the right, and they're housed in two different museums. Matisse made the study of the of uh, while he was in the town of Saint Tropez with Signac. So they were spending time together looking at similar landscapes. But what you begin to see here now in Matisse is the putting into place of the themes, the subjects, the formal language that will dominate his painting really to the end of his life. And first it's the subject itself, which is this idyllic paradise-like, erotic, sensual place of escape. The, the subject of this painting, the phrase, lux comme volupté, actually came from the poet Charles Baudelaire. And Baudelaire was writing about an imaginative place, much like the Isle of Cythera, if you know the Watteau painting, where people could escape to this island to just be enmeshed and engulfed in hedonistic, erotic, sensual experience. So it was a place of sensuality and eroticism and escape. That's the subject of the poem. Matisse took that phrase and made it the subject of this painting. And that's what he tries to show us, this kind of beautiful outdoor picnic along the shoreline, the sea and the mountains. But of course, now it's becoming more and more highly abstracted. This painting owes certainly a debt to Signac. He's painting with Signac at this time. And so you see the vestiges of a pointillist technique in the study at the left, but especially in the finished painting at the right. But you can certainly see that Matisse isn't interested in a kind of scientific pointillism. He's just interested in having those dots and points create a beautiful abstracted rhythm. Signac is relevant, but also if you look at the figure of the bather with uh, her hand and arm up over her head, certainly we have a relationship to Cezanne's bathers in that figure as well. But the most important aspect of both the study and the finished painting are the formal aspects of just color, uh, light, abstraction. Notice that nature does not follow any rules here of local color. If he wants the beach to be blue and then it's green and then it's purple and then it's orange and then it's yellow, the same with the sky, things are changing. They're this sort of constant beauty involved with and encompassed by color and light. We could already read, although this painting is four years before Matisse will write his so-called notes of a painter, but remember in the notes of a painter by Matisse, he mentions that what he is seeking in his art, and I'm quoting now, what I dream of is an art of balance, of purity and serenity, devoid of troubling or depressing subject matter. Certainly Matisse will not be a great painter of politics or of social injustice, uh, poverty, the disenfranchised. Uh, he'll be different than Picasso in that particular way. And this painting is already showing you his love of this kind of hedonistic, beautiful, sensual, uplifting, positive kind of subject matter. If we come back to the map that shows in this case, all of France, but we wanna look again at the Southeast corner 
and you can see Monaco, and then you can see Nice. But then if you keep moving to your left, just about before we get to the Spanish border, there is the town of Collier. Now Collier is again, uh, a very important location for, uh, for Matisse, because here he travels uh, in 1905, he decides to summer in Collier, which is a small fishing village um, in the south of France. But he's joined this time not by uh, Paul Signac, but by André Durand, who is, of course, along with Matisse, one of the original so-called fauves. So in Collier, he's working with Durand, and they're going out into the countryside, painting similar subjects and themes. And it's at this time, 1905, when Matisse produces another painting that becomes even more important in many ways than the Lux Came Volupte that we just saw. And it's this finished painting on the right, which is um, called The Joy of Life from 1905 to 1906. That's at the Barnes Foundation today in Philadelphia. And the painting on the left is the study for The Joy of Life. It's a preliminary study from uh, 1905 and it's that landscape of Collier so it's a study but he actually it actually was the landscape of Collier. So here we are uh, Matisse had been painting in Saint-Tropez with Signac and now he's painting with Durand in um, Collier and as I said it's a small fishing village. Um, Durand was with him. Durand was 10 years uh, Matisse's junior, and they really are putting into place uh, much of the language that will become part of the movement of Fauvism. Um, the painting on the right is one of Matisse's most radical paintings uh, for this period of 1904-1905. It's related to the Lux Came Volupte because essentially it's a similar theme of a hedonistic pastoral idyllic landscape with nudes, male and female, reclining, bathing, embracing with dancers. If you look closely at the painting on the right to that central motif of the dancers, that is in fact the first incarnation of the famous dancer pictures that Matisse will execute later around 1909 to 1910 where the dancers are in a circle holding hands. But what's most important, <clears throat> again, and it was evident in the Lux Kami Volupte, but it's more evident now here, is how Matisse is departing from nature. When we look at this painting, the colors, the shapes, um, are not explained by actually the elements of nature. So trees and sky can be green or blue or fuchsia. Uh, forms are abstracted. In other words, he's beginning to assert the independence of the formal language, the formal tools of painting, color, shape, composition, spaces flattened. Uh, this is the move towards a modernist language, a modernist vocabulary. It's emphasizing now not an objective interpretation of what's in front of the artist's eye, but more of a subjective perception of the image itself, of something that's in his, it's partly in his eye, but it's also more in his mind and he's seeking a kind of independence 
So taken together, Lux Kame Volupte and The Joy of Life are remarkably important paintings by Matisse in this period uh, in the Riviera, on the Riviera between 1904 and 1905. And that takes us to one of the landmark paintings that we're happy to have at the National Gallery, which is part of this period and is part of this time with uh, Andre Durand at Collier, and that's uh, the open window on the left by Matisse from 1905. And what you're looking at on the right is the actual interior of the hotel that the painting was created in. This is a photograph from 1942. So that's where Matisse was residing. That's where he was looking out of the window with those French doors, the ironwork and the balcony railing and looking out to the sea where you see the ships. So he's working with Durand in Collier in 1905. This is one of the most important Matisse paintings for the early part of his career. It's one of the most iconic paintings for the development of modernist painting in the 20th century. One can see where he had been heading, looking back at the two previous works, uh, the Lux Kame Volupte and also the Joy of Life, because now he is clearly abstracting and altering all aspects of the empirical object and vision that he's seeing. So we're in a room, you'll notice the two sides of the room are completely different. One is, one side is painted in a green and the other in a kind of fuchsia. We're really de dealing with a series of frames, uh, the room itself, the French doors, the balcony, and then the window out to the sea. Uh, there's a flatness, so that everything, while it has a framing device, it's also emphasizing flatness, surface texture. If you look closely at the flower pots, the flowers themselves, that's the last hint or vestige of the pointless technique of Signac. So this painting has broad, flat areas of paint, but at the same time, he's bidding farewell to that sort of pointillist aspect of the a paint application as well. It's a painting based almost entirely on the bright contrast of complementary colors. Uh, look at the boats and you see the blue with the orange of the, the blue ship boat itself with the orange mast. If you look at the flowers, we have red and green. These are complementary colors that stress brightness. They're, uh, they're, they reside at the opposite locations on the color the color wheel, you'll notice how the paint varies. The walls kind of flat and scrubbed in. Uh, then you'll see this pointless technique. But above the mass of the boats, you see these thick lozenges of paint for the sky and for the clouds. So again, it's a painting in which this different handling of the brush, the different tactile sense, constantly is calling attention to the fact that we're looking at a painting. It may be a view through an open window, but it's, a, it's clearly a new direction in art. Uh, and this particular direction is, again, stressing essentially the autonomy of a painting. A painting may be based on nature, but that doesn't mean that it has to end up looking like nature or looking like the actual scene the artist was in front of. 
this is, as I said, a very important movement in the direction of modernist uh, aesthetics. The other important element here for Matisse is this constant image or this constant interest, I should say, that he has in the trope of an open window. He will come back to the open window over and over again. It really is a subject that never leaves him. Partly, it certainly is due to the idea, going back to the Renaissance, that a, a painting was supposed to be a window to the world, which meant it should stress naturalism, realism, you should master one-point linear perspective, it should use local color. In other words, that you were, when you looked at the painting, it was as if you were looking out a window. But by the 19th century, with the invention of photography and post-impressionist innovations by Cezanne and Seurat, Van Gogh and Gauguin, that whole idea of the window as a window to the world was now being shattered. And so clearly Matisse, who was well aware of the history of art, is asserting a new function for the window and for the, the trope of a window, the open window, not just this idea of looking and replicating and mimicking nature, but as painting, painting in and of itself. And so that's why this motif is a motif you will come back to over and over again. Now we have the open window at the National Gallery, and it normally hangs close by to this painting on the right by Andre Durand, which was painted at the same time, in the same location in Collier. And this is the mountains at Collier by Andre Durand. So here we have the two great Fauve artists. These works will be included in that very controversial 1905 uh, exhibition in the Salon d'Automne, the Autumn Salon, that will garner such criticism and will give birth to the name Fauve, Wild Beast. And look at the Durand because we have a similar set of principles here. The, the growth of the trees, olive trees, etc., which almost looked like an olive orchard by Van Gogh, uh, have the short choppy strokes but by the time you get up into the sky, as you're moving to the mountains, those short choppy strokes become bigger, longer lozenges of paint. And then by the time you get into the sky, there are big flat areas of color. There's abstraction, there's a kind of telescoping, a foreground, middle ground, background. You certainly still have a foreground here, but middle ground, background are beginning to bleed together. That was that's true certainly in the Matisse as well at the left where those potted plants are supposed to be on a ledge and that's in front of the balcony that's behind them and then into the water but it all seems to flatten across the picture plane. So both of these artists Matisse and Durand are certainly inspired by residing on the French Riviera in this case the town of Collieur now, the, the crowning achievement of Matisse on the Riviera, and in some ways his crowning achievement, if we take it as his attempt to create an entire artistic environment, is the chapel, uh, the Matisse Chapel, uh, that's located in Vence on the Riviera. Between 1948 
1952, he was given a commission to create a chapel for the, for the Dominican nuns who resided in Vence. So the formal title really of this chapel is not the Matisse Chapel, but it's the Chapel of the Holy Rosary of the Dominican nuns at Vence. It's a few miles west of Nice, up into the hills, as you see here. It's not far from where he had his studio in, in one of his homes. And this was the attempt and the opportunity for Matisse to do everything as an artist, to be the architect and to design the building, to create all of the interior design, which would encompass the furniture, the various pews and, and seats, all of the painting that would appear, all of the stained glass, uh, all of the liturgical objects, um, chalices, candlesticks, all of the vestments, the chasubles that the priests would wear. Um, what you're looking at on the left and on the right at the top of the building is the steeple. That's the bell tower, which is a very thin, beautifully abstracted linear rhythm that has the tiny bell at the bottom. So that was his interpretation of the age-old idea of a, of a bell tower. He designed everything, the roof design. Here you see the chapel again. The entrance to the chapel is interesting because it's off center to the left. If you look at the slide on the left, the entrance is that opening all the way to the left of the building. So on one side of the chapel that fronts to the street, it's basically blank. To the other side of the chapel that faces the sea, it's this beautiful stained glass. And that relates to how the sun rises and sets to enter the to, to enter the space and to activate the stained glass. There's that steeple on the left, the bell tower, shall we say. Now, this whole commission relates to a number of different elements and personal relationships in Matisse's life. I'm showing you a photograph of Matisse on the left with uh, a nun who was part of the order of the Dominican nuns at this chapel, her, her name, her, her, the name that she took as a sister is the sister Jacques-Marie. That's actually not what her name was before she became a nun. Her actual given name was Monique Bourgeois. Uh, Monique Bourgeois. In 1941, Monique was a nursing student and Matisse was suffering through some physical ailments. He had in fact been dealing with a bout of an, of in, intestinal cancer and had had an operation and he felt he needed uh, a nurse to sort of be at his beck and call. He put an ad in the paper that literally said that what he was looking for was quote, a young and pretty night nurse. That's actually what he wrote, a young and pretty night nurse. And um, Monique answered that ad. She had been a nursing student and this began a friendship between the artist and uh, Monique. And she sat for him as a model. And she appears as a model in four different paintings. Um, this is obviously before she becomes a nun. But one of the paintings is at the right, Monique in a gray robe from 1942. And that relationship 
as nurse, as friend, as model, continued when she was now a nun. And it's through her when it was decided that the sisters wanted a new chapel. Obviously, she had a great friendship with Matisse. And eventually, the commission for the chapel was given to Matisse. So it's a long, beautiful story about how that came about. This is the floor plan of the chapel. It's very simple. So here we have the view, if you're inside, looking towards the altar. See the altar, the candlesticks, the crucifix, everything designed by Matisse. The stained glass window, which depicts the tree of life. That's the topic or the subject designed by Matisse. And then this beautiful, simple ceramic painting. It's a enamel on ceramic. Uh, almost like a line drawing, but it's a painting of St. Dominic, who is obviously the founder of the Dominican order. If we step back a bit, he designed that little chandelier that you see on the, on the ceiling. We're stepping back to see another ceramic painting. There's St. Dominic sort of in the center, and then we see a Madonna and child. You see the term Ave, Hail, as in Ave Maria. Uh, this is a Dominican chapel. And so it had Dominical, Dominican liturgical functions and had to be, those had to be respected. For example, the robes of the priest, et cetera, all of that. Uh, of course, the Dominican robe is essentially, or, or habit is essentially black and white. So by choosing black and white for the paintings, he was reflecting those black and white habits of the Dominicans as well. These paintings on the wall have no ground line. Um, they seem to hover um, as if they're not literally planted on the wall, on the, on the floor or the ground. So they have a kind of visionary, otherworldly sort of levitation uh, feeling. Here's Matisse at work on the crucifix. So that's the, the clay model he's working on at the left in the photograph and then two different photographs of the actual crucifix that's on the, um, that's today on the altar. You can't get more abstract and attenuated and linear. It's like he just takes the clay and stretches it until it's almost at a breaking point and it becomes this ribbon-like uh, figure. If you enter, and that's the door you would enter from that you're seeing in the lower right, so you're coming in kind of off center. And if you enter that door, you look down to the altar as I just showed you. But if you turned, if you were at the altar and turned around and looked at the, the wall, the back wall, then you see the uh, Stations of the Cross, a traditional Catholic um, concept of the passion, essentially, from the time that Jesus appears before Pilate, uh, ultimately to his to his crucifixion. Now, these are devotion in a Catholic church. These are devotional objects or images that are normally placed along the church wall. Each one is a separate element, and one can pray and have devotional meditation in front of each station as you go from station to station. That's not what Matisse did here. What Matisse did here was to put all 14 stations on one wall as a comprehensive sort of collection. 
to help you figure out which one came first, he numbers them. So if you look at the lower left-hand corner, Christ before Pilate, that's number one. And we go all the way up to number 14, Christ laid in the tomb, the entombment in the upper, uh, in the upper right. You can see the effect of the stained glass and the light that comes through at different times. The stations of the cross, and here is a closer view, are remarkable uh, because of their economy, their simplicity. Uh, they are abstract with one or two or five or six lines he creates what that station is meant to represent. For example, number three at the bottom is when Christ falls the first time as he's been carrying the cross. And there are only like six or seven lines there. And yet you completely understand the concept. So he numbers them. They're in the same kind of black enamel on ceramic that the other images are. There are 14, but it's one cohesive kind of of um, of grouping, but they're beautiful because they're both abstract, but they have tremendous clarity. You can look at each one and define exactly what it is that that station represents. Uh, here's a different view where we have not the empty space, but chairs, normally there are chairs, not pews. And what you're looking at in the upper left, uh, sort of in the center left, is the, um, are the are the uh, choir stalls for the for, for the nuns? So the nuns would be seated in the uh, left there, the so-called nun stalls. They would both be seated there, and it would also be sort of the choir. And then the uh, space itself, the windows, uh, the light, uh, the altar. At the right is a photograph of Matisse in the chapel in 1951, where he's still working out some ideas, uh, this appeared in Life Magazine, as, as you can see. So there's the door that would be the entrance. They haven't really laid the tile floor yet, which you can see on the right. Um, that's actually, it's a marble floor. So this is still a work at this point in, in progress. Now, when I mentioned he was responsible for um, everything, that includes the vestments for the priests. In the Catholic tradition, vestments change through the season, and they have to have certain colors at certain points in the season. So he could not deviate from color schemes. And in fact, he had a Dominican advisor relating to him certain aspects of what the vestments had to have, the chastribules for the priests, etc. So he had worked out all of the other elements of the design, the murals, the stained glass, basically the architecture, the objects, and now he was confronted with designing the, um, the vestments. Here they are in the museum on the left, that's at the chapel, some of them. And on the right, you're looking at the paper maquette. That go, the, there, there are paper maquettes that go along with each of the finished uh, garments. Now, as I said, these garments were predetermined by uh, liturgical uh, conventions. He had a Dominican priest who was providing him some of the key elements that each vestment had to, had to have, but then he had a certain freedom uh, within those restrictions. He creates six sets of um, chasubles, 
there's a white set, a green set, a violet set, a red set, a rose set, and a black set. Here are all of the um, chassis bills, front and back. So the front side and the back side. So you see uh, the black, the rose, uh, the red, the green, the violet, and the white reading from left uh, to right. Okay, we've talked about a number of artists uh, in the Riviera, Matisse, Durand, um, Signac, Monet, Renoir, Bert Morisot, all of whom worked along the Riviera. Well, of course, another name that dominates on the French Riviera uh, was Pablo Picasso. And his work is everywhere to be found along the French Riviera. So here he is um, on the left, the very famous, these are both photographs by Robert Capa, the very famous photographer who worked for Magnum, Magnum Photos. So on the left is Picasso with Francois Gillot at Golf Juan, Golf Juan or Jean from August 1948. And on the right, it's the same um, photographer, Picasso and Francois Gillot and, and their son, Claude, that's Claude, the little, the little boy um, from 1948. Picasso, like Matisse, kind of moved up and down the coast, living in different places at different times. Um, Gulf, the Gulf Juan, the Juan Gulf, is a seaside resort on the Côte d'Azur that he stayed at for a while. During the war, during the Second World War, Picasso stayed in Paris. Uh, so he was there during the Nazi occupation. But as soon as the war ended, uh, he returned to the Riviera and he went to Antibes, where he settled for a while. He had a new love in his life, and that is Francois Gillot, that you see here. And they were together um, from roughly 1943 to 1953. Now, Antibes is one of the major cities along the Riviera. It's a city that goes all the way back uh, to the Greeks. It's not so much a city, it's a, it's a town. Its Greek name was Antipolis, and from Antipolis we get Antibes. And today, in this huge structure at the left that you see on the in the slide, is the uh, Musée Picasso at Antibes. Now, this building was known as the Chateau Grimaldi originally, it was a castle, chateau, and uh, it eventually came to be owned by the city of Antibes. Uh, they renamed it the Musée Grimaldi, so it became a museum, and it originally housed, it still does, a lot of archaeological artifacts from the region. So it had a long history in the town. It then became a museum. The city uh, council, had trouble filling all the rooms. It's a huge place. And they didn't have enough artifacts to actually fill up many of the spaces. So they invited Picasso to reside in the entire second floor of the chateau, of the Chateau Grimaldi. And he was given the entire second floor as his studio. And he used that studio space from September to November of um, the year 1946. He was very prolific in that period. He created some 23 paintings and 44 drawings in just two months. 
on the right, you're looking at that studio space. You can see Francois Gillot to the right, and Picasso there towards the back. And the very important painting that he painted here that is still there today is the painting on the easel. That's the joy of life, which we'll come back to in a second. This painting is not in the Chateau. This is in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, but it is one of the most famous paintings of Antibes by Picasso. This is night fishing at Antibes from 1939, today in the Museum of Modern Art. It's a magnificent picture. It has a number of interesting historical precedents about figures fishing at the sea, Raphael, Dutch 17th century paintings, all of that relates to the iconography here. This is 1939, just before the outbreak of the Second World War. He shows these two fishermen night fishing with spears at night. Uh, it's a nocturnal scene lit by lamplight. You have the breakwater on the right. So you have two ladies, two women, two girls, I guess we would say, on the right. It has a vivid range of color, very unusual for, for Picasso at this time, this incredible array of colors. It's a, it's, a, it's a magnificent painting, a rich iconography, a lot of color and elements that are really quite new for Picasso at the time. And the painting was finished just before the Second World War uh, broke out. So this painting is at MoMA. But this painting is at the Chateau, or I should say today at the Musée Picasso uh, at Antibes. And this is probably the greatest painting he painted while he was in residence in 1946, those two months. This is the joy of life at the Picasso Museum in Antibes. Living in, on the Riviera uh, in southern France, um, right on the Mediterranean, uh, he really was absorbed into the mythology of the Mediterranean, Greek and Roman myths and travelers and stories. So the idea of nymphs and fauns, satyrs, bulls, um, of wine, of music, of dance, all of these mythic Mediterranean motifs, he got very excited about those while he was at Antibes. And that's essentially what we have here we have a woman dancing, this very elongated sort of woman in the center. We have these mythic creatures like horses on either side. They're play, playing musical instruments. These musical instruments, these long flutes that are double-barreled, like the one you see at the right, actually are um, references to a particular type of instrument played in this region. It's called a duale, a duale. A, a double, a, a double parted or a double barrel flute, which was very typical for the Mediterranean and the Riviera. The story seems to even refer to the whole Greek history of Antipolis, the Greek name for Antibes. And it's also an homage to Francois Gillot because the painting is a, a beautiful celebratory image of women and music and dance. And it's this very happy period for Picasso at this time. The war is over, and so it, it has that element to it. One of the other famous paintings at the Musée 
Rimaldi or the Musée Picasso now is this one of the goat from 1946. This is wonderful. Uh, Picasso scrounged a lot of materials when he was in the chateau, a lot of materials that workmen had left. So there was plywood and there were sheets of canvas and there were paper sheets, there were some wooden, wooden panels, there was, a, there was industrial enamel paint and he tended to use a lot of these materials. So this is a strange painting in terms of its materials. It's, it's one of these oleoresinous uh, enamel paints with charcoal, then it's painted on a piece of plywood. So these are some of the scrounged materials. Uh, it's a wonderful kind of almost x-ray of a goat. Uh, you can see the ribs just blocked in there but it really has a tremendous sort of feel to it. Now, another place uh, near Antibes that Picasso frequented was the town of Valarus. Um, Valarus, and there was a castle there. And in this location, you're looking at the, the location now here, the, the courtyard of the castle of Valarus. Um, Picasso was invited to paint another important um, set of paintings, and this was a kind of war and peace uh, sequence of, of murals. They were installed in 1954 in this deconsecrated Romanesque chapel. You're seeing the door on the left to the chapel, and if you look to the slide on the right, the door is sort of in the center. You can just see the black opening. So part of this castle had a chapel, which was a Romanesque building, but it had been deconsecrated years earlier. So he came here and decided to, to paint a series of panels. There were 18 of them. They go together, they were on plywood, and uh, then they were fixed to the ceiling with large sort of screws. So it's a very unusual sort of material again. And uh, the allegory for the panels was the allegory of war and peace. Now here is that Romanesque deconsecrated chapel that then was painted by Picasso with these war and peace murals. So this commission dates to 1952. It should be noted that in the 50s, and this relates to a number of issues in the United States and J. Edgar Hoover and everybody else, Picasso was a communist. He had very strong leftist communist leanings, as did this town. And so some of his imagery and some of his ideas on politics were very welcomed in this town, which was essentially a, a, a village that was very strongly uh, communist in its politics. So some of this imagery relates to his, uh, his leftist leanings at the time. So here we have the murals. One mural on one side depicts war, and the other on the other side depicts peace. These are painted on wooden panels that are that bow, they're kind of shaped panels that are then fixed to the walls. The title did come from Tolstoy, War and Peace. Uh, Picasso stayed in this town between 1948 and 1955. He devoted himself to this chapel. He worked pretty much in secrecy except for his son, Paolo. Paulo helped his father move the, the panels and fix them to the walls. Um, 
he pretty much, as I said, worked in, in isolation. The War and Peace murals are Picasso's last major political paintings. If you remember, Guernica is 1937. The painting Massacre in Korea is 1951. And the War and Peace murals are 1952. Uh, so this is his last statement in terms of a direct political statement, something again that Matisse would never do. So here are the, the murals. Um, war is on the left, peace is in the center. And then there's this symbolic painting at the end that I just showed you at the end of the space that has these figures holding up a globe with the, the dove of peace in the center. So these are the three parts of the mural. The part depicting war at the far left is very dark, it's ominous. There's a hearse that's being drawn by horses. There's a horned demon that holds a bloody sword. And then he holds a bag of human skulls. You can see that kind of in the center. He has a bloody sword and in his other hand, he's holding a bag of skulls. They're trampling over burning books, symbolizing the desire of dictators to stamp out culture. Um, it's a very poignant, it's a very pointed, I should say, political message. At the far left is a figure holding a lance and a, and a shield, and it has the scales, it has scales of justice as well. Um, that figure is far to the left. The horse portrayed in peace in the center, there's a horse figure, it's a winged sort of pegasus. Some people believe is actually a self-portrait of Picasso. The face actually does look somewhat like Picasso. The uh, peace mural in the center is the sort of complement to the war um, uh, figure. Here we have men and women and children who are participating in peaceful, joyful activities. They're reading, they're dancing, they're playing. There's a mother nursing a baby. Uh, all of that as a, as a sort of antidote. There's this winged Pegasus, as I mentioned. There's a pipe playing pan figure. So again, there's a lot of Mediterranean mythology here. And then that center mural that we see in this slide at the far right depicts people of all different uh, races and ethnicities. There are different skin colors, essentially. They join hands in a sign of unity and they hold up another kind of either shields, mainly, I guess it's more of a shield than a globe that has the dove of peace uh, in it. Picasso considered this entire chapel as his temple of peace in essence. So here's the war image again at the top, the peace image at the bottom. As I said, the war image is particularly brutal that demon figure with the horns, with the bloody sword, the bag of skulls, trampling, the horses are trampling these books that are on fire, being destroyed, and a very different feeling down below, a more joyful scene. What's interesting in terms of iconography, the war mural at the top was actually thought to refer to allegations that the United States had used germ warfare during the Korean War. These allegations were strenuously denied by America. 
by Britain and by France throughout the 1950s and 60s. And they were denounced as a communist lie. So some people believe Picasso was referring to America and the use of germ warfare in the Korean War with that top mural. Here's the way they curve. So there are these separate panels of wood. You can see the seams, but the wood is turned, it's, uh, it's um, shaped to fit the uh, vaulting of the, uh, of the space. That's that demon figure in the center holding all the skulls as well as the um, uh, bloody sword, all these creatures, reptiles and other images. Now, quite different um, from all of that is the work of another artist associated with the Riviera, and that's Marc Chagall. So here is Marc Chagall on the left in 1966 uh, at St. Paul de Vence, the town St. Paul de Vence. And here he is in his studio in the same time, same place um, from 1966. Chagall had first traveled to the Côte d'Azur in 1926, along with his first wife and their daughter. Um, he, in the spring of that year, they spent a lot of time in Nice uh, and everything that was of revelation to Matisse and Picasso was a revelation to Chagall, especially the light. Uh, so he had this initial encounter with the Riviera that stayed with him. He spent the years of the Second World War in the United States. Chagall was in the United States during the Second World War. But after the war ended, he returned to France and he settled in Vence, the city where the Matisse Chapel is located. He was close friends with both Picasso and Matisse. They were there at the same time. They knew each other. They hung out. They clearly were, were neighbors. Uh, in 1966, Chagall bought a house with his second wife um, called La Colline, the hill. Um, and that was in the town of St. Paul de Vence. And he stayed there for the rest of his life. This is the cemetery at St. Paul de Vence. And this is where Chagall is buried. And that's his grave on the right. He's buried there with his wife, his second wife, Vava, and with her brother. So that's Chagall's brother-in-law, Michelle Brodsky. Uh, so this is where he remained the rest of his life. This is where he is, uh, he is buried. Much like Matisse and the others, what the Riviera brought out in Chagall were just paintings of basically of happiness and of joy and of love and of beautiful blue skies and water, birds and flowers. He was very happy here. And today there is a museum devoted to Chagall that's located in Nice, the Chagall Museum, which you see here on the left and then the inside on the right. And this museum was actually created when he was still alive. In other words, he had a, a direct role in laying out this museum to showcase his art. It was promoted by the Minister of Culture in France, Andre Malraux, and this museum opened in 1973. So it's a museum in which essentially the artist curated, you might say, the museum. It's today known as the National Museum Marc Chagall Biblical Message. That's the appropriate full title. National Museum Marc Chagall Biblical Message. 
because the paintings here that he wanted in this museum were paintings on biblical subjects. There are 17 paintings illustrating what he referred to as the biblical message. And he offered these to the French state for, as a gift in 1966. And then he offered another series of uh, five paintings on biblical subjects. Once that gift was accepted, it was decided to build a museum to house the paintings. So that's what we have here uh, inside the, um, uh, the museum. So here on the left in the, what the two people are looking at is the painting titled Paradise. And on the right is the painting titled Expulsion. These are both from 1961. So the museum offers the visitor, the room that these two people are in is the first room that contains 12 large size paintings illustrating the first two books of the Old Testament, Genesis and Exodus. And then there's a smaller room that has five more paintings that deals with the Song of Songs. So those are the subjects here. Um, it's the, this is a permanent collection and it is now the biggest public collection of works by Marc Chagall in any one, in any one location. So here is Paradise again on the left, Adam and Eve in Paradise. And then Adam and Eve uh, banished. So this is the expulsion on the right, Adam and Eve banished from Paradise in 1961. There are a number of different subjects here from the first two, two books. These are two of the most famous, uh, Paradise and the Expulsion or the Banishment. Typical Chagall style, this wonderful, bright, vivid light, this very abstracted linear drawing style, almost a feeling again of stained glass and mosaic, a very high keyed palette, all of which was encouraged for because of his time in the south of France. Another major museum devoted to a major artist on the Riviera is the Fernand Leger Museum. And this is the museum here. Uh, it's in the town of Biot, B-I-O-T. Uh, a few months before Leger's death in 1955, he bought a villa in Biot. Uh, it was a kind of a farmhouse uh, near uh, the town of Biot. He had moved to the Riviera even before he bought the house to uh, work on ceramics, which is interesting because Picasso did a lot of ceramic work at Valarus, the place we were just talking about. Um, eventually, it was decided to uh, devote uh, an entire museum to Malra to um, Leger, and this was again supported by the cult Minister of Culture, Andre Malraux. He essentially established this museum dedicated to Leger. Uh, it was inaugurated in 1960. Chagall was present at the inauguration. Uh, so was Pablo Picasso and so, so was Georges Braque. So they all attended the opening of this museum and it was um, opened five years uh, before, Leger's, uh, before Leger's death. Compared to the Chagall Museum, the Leger Museum is gigantic. It's much, much bigger than the uh, Chagall Museum. And there are these exterior murals that you see here and here that um, 
Leger gave permission to be expanded from smaller works uh, into these larger exterior murals that decorate the exterior. We have two Leger paintings at the National Gallery, uh, animated landscape at the left from 1923 and two women on the right from 1922. This is the famous promenade in Nice in April of this year of 2020 during the coronavirus pandemic. It, these two people are not social distancing. The promenade is completely empty now. Um, recently, some people did try to charter a plane to go to the Riviera. They were from London, but they were stopped and, and sent back. People are ready to get back to the Riviera, back to the Côte d'Azur, back to the promenade in, in Nice. This is the promenade that had an earlier tragedy that you may recall, which was on Bastille Day, July 14, 2016. This was the promenade where a man came with a large truck and just ran down the promenade and leading to the deaths of 86 people and over 400 people who were injured. This is the heart and soul of Nice in many ways, and it will definitely be back. People are waiting and lined up and very anxious to return to normal uh, along the French Riviera and especially along the great promenade here uh, at, at Nice. Thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.